Welcome to the Wonder Women Tech Show, where we highlight, celebrate, and amplify women and BIPOC voices. We're bringing Wonder Women Tech to the airwaves. I'm your host, Lisa Mae Brunson. Lisa Mae Brunson with the Wonder Women Tech Show. And today's guest is Celia Litvin, psychologist, founder, and CEO of Psych Apps, a digital mental health company. Celia was born in Germany, but moved to Southern California early in her life. Exposed to many diverse cultures, she developed an insatiable curiosity for the human condition, leading to her pursuing a degree in psychology. She began her master's at the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, graduating in clinical psychology and systemic family therapy in 2013. Alongside her education as a systemic family therapist in 2015, she began her PhD in clinical psychology. A child of the digital generation, Celia was looking for ways to use apps and social media to help people suffering from mental health challenges. She went on to create a psychological mobile app, EQ, that helps users identify and self-manage depression. Celia ventured into the world of AI, gamification, and chatbots to find imaginative ways to help people help themselves. Welcome to the show, Celia. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa May. It's been too long. Oh my God, it's absolutely been too long. Like, I can't believe how time flies because we've known each other for several years now and you've become an important part of the Wonder Women Tech family. In fact, I was like searching back through the history of our emails to find out like, when did we first connect? Which it was 2016. And so much has like happened since then. Yeah, crazy. Yes, yes. I, I feel like um, I'm I'm uh, old school now. Part of the Wonder Woman tech. It's it's a joy. It is like you were you you have literally become such an integral part of of the family, and like you know you've uh, supported with our own journey into having sort of mindfulness and mental health awareness within our organization and within our programming, which you've led. So. I'm so excited to like have you here and be part of this next journey inside of our story, um, you know, being a part of the podcast. Like, take us back to Germany and your life as a child. Can you share what your life was like there with your family and then your travels to California and how they defined you? Yeah, sure. So um, actually, when I moved to California, I was two years old. So I don't remember my first years in Germany. Um, I have my first years from California. And they were very, very positive. So um, my family lived together in a kind of a communal situation with um, another couple and a family friend. So it was a lot of adults for us two kids. There were a lot of people taking care of us, teaching us, doing fun things with us. It, there was always someone that we could go to and had time for us. So that was just beautiful. Like 
we went hiking. We were repelled off the roof of our house. Um, you know, we we went. We had animals. We had a pet chicken called Airwolf. Uh, you know, in the middle of suburbia, <laughs> it, it was really a, a wonderful time. And then um, my mom, um, she had been separated quite early from my biological father. Um, she wanted to go back to Germany uh, when we were about when I was about nine years old. So I had lived in the States for about seven years. Um, and I remember that being quite traumatic. So we, we didn't move straight to Germany. We moved to Luxembourg and we stayed with my aunt in this old European house that creaked at night. And you know there was an <laughs> owl in front of the window go, and a California <laughs> kid living, you know, in those cardboard houses in the States that, you know, <laughs> is so different. Uh, it was it was really a hard time of transitioning and the mentality in old Europe, which Luxembourg definitely is, is a lot less friendly than you, you expect from California, for example. Right. I mean, just imagine going to a restaurant and in California it's like, hi, my name is Tiffany. I'm going to be your waitress for day. Can I take your meal? Like, do you need anything? Blah, blah, blah. And you go to Luxembourg and they're like, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> It's actually, it's still like that to this day. Like it's, it's yes. culture shock for sure. Culture shock. And it, it's funny because I went back to Luxembourg about three years ago and I was really not awe how beautiful it is. You know, all these old buildings and they have the park in the middle and it, it's just very historical. But when you're a kid, that is, that's not pretty. It's, it's frightening, right? So the, the transition was not a good one. And my mom, um, as a single parent, she was um, doing adult education. So by the time we came home from school, she went on to teach and we didn't see her until sometimes late at night and we were already sleeping. So it was, it was, um, it wasn't that good of a, a phase of my life. Um, and then around, I think 12 years, we moved to Germany and in Germany, we moved to a tiny, tiny little town called Eifel in the middle of the rolling German hills. And it was very, you know, um, wholesome. Uh, we would go get milk from the farmer and like literally from the udder into our cans. <laughs> <laughs> and you just imagine you coming from Stater Brothers with milk that has like maybe 1% milk left in it. <laughs> and you go to a proper farmer and you have real, real milk that hasn't been pasteurized or anything. It's just so different. That's like one of the memories that were very strong with me. Um, yeah, and then um, I, I grew up pretty much until my 18th birthday in Batmasaifo. And um, I, I think I have a bit of a psychology origin story. Um, so when I was young, and because we moved around so much, and I was often surrounded by adults, I didn't feel like I understood or had control about what was going on around me. And that life was very chaotic and um, a little bit frightening. Yeah. And when my sister, for her birthday, she was her 15th birthday, and I was like 12, 13, got a book about body language. It blew my mind that there was a science out there that would teach people how to understand other people, how they thought, why they reacted the way they did, as well as yourself. And that's mm. when I decided I want to become a psychologist. So I have wanted to become a psychologist since I was 12, and I'm, I'm very, very lucky and blessed that the more I learn about psychology, the more interesting I find it. I, I would say it's my um, 
ikigai. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. You know, it's it's your your core essence where you do something that you're good at, that you love doing, and that you can actually make a living from. So, um, yeah, psychology is is pretty much my calling. Yeah, I mean, because you had to really kind of understand all the transitions in your life at such a young age, you know, that we're not just like your standard, we just moved to a different city or a different state even, but this is like, we're hopping from country to country and, and we're doing it all before you're even, you know, 13. Yeah. And and it wasn't always very, you know, friendly. I remember when we were in Luxembourg, they wanted to put us in a school for special needs because we didn't speak um, neither French nor German nor Luxembourgish. It was like, you know, we're not, we're not special needs. We're just speak English, you know, it's, it's, and my mom had to fight for us to be in a normal school. And it was just, you know, just lots of change and, and, and challenges. So like, in what ways were you exposed to many diverse cultures, you know, like, how did that shape your thoughts and experiences as you observed the human condition? You know, you're going through, um, again, these transitions. You're having to figure out languages. Like, what did that look like for you? And, and what were some of your initial thoughts about humans as you began observing them? I think, I mean, of course, I'm, I'm super old now, so the memories aren't as fresh as they used to be. But I, I do have more than actual thoughts or cognitions. It's like pictures in my head that and, and smells and tastes. Like like I said, just about the milk, the thickness of like real organic milk that comes straight from the cow. It stayed with me because it was so different and it was really powerful in a in a yeah. scary but still good way. You know what I mean? And. Mm-hmm. Going into Luxembourg, I remember we we landed in Charles de Gaulle and then we took a train to Luxembourg City and it had been a a year of a flood. So everything was gray, was underwater. The fields were underwater. There were, you know, farmers, old school farmers, old people hand picking stuff in the fields and it was gray and it, it just felt so different. And it wasn't so much about the culture that that just that I didn't have any choice. I didn't have a voice. Like I couldn't say, oh, I don't want to go here or something like that. Or I'd rather go there or to vet school or something. I was just kind of like thrown into it and trying to pick up an understanding along the way. But along a lot of the times I just, I, I didn't understand what was going on and I, I felt very vulnerable. So that that's kind of like the feeling and the, the vision, yeah. the pictures and the taste and the smells. So what was it like for you to develop friendships? Because, you know, there's language barriers. So eventually you had to overcome those. What did friendships and relationships look like for you? I was a really awkward kid. Um, I also grew up around a lot of adults, which have completely different communication styles than kids, right? So um, when I went to, I, I think the longest time that I actually stayed around the same group of kids was when I was in Batmanster Eiffel from age of 13 until 18. And it was it was a very volatile grade. So we were about 50 people, 50 kids in our grades, and it was four different classes. And every summer, there would be like a shift in dynamics. So it wasn't the same cliques, you know, being friends over years, but this, suddenly the dynamics would change and friends would differ. And then you'd have, you know, a your nemesis was your ex-best friend from the year before and everything. 
So I, I, I felt <laughs> very difficult to understand and to connect with other kids. Um, and I was bullied a lot. And I, I think I wasn't, it wasn't very helpful that I was, I wasn't very empathetic. It's kind of funny, you know, being a psychologist, <laughs> one of the things you have to be is empathetic, but like I could not read a room for for my life. I just go in there and ah, here I am and I want to play and what? Why don't you like me? <laughs> so the body language book like inspired you, but you didn't actually learn. <laughs> you didn't learn exactly. from it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it, it actually took my, my first psychology session to understand a lot of the reasons why I was bullied and that that I did have a, a place in that, which I do not want to do victim shaming here. But in my case, um, had I been able to um, show a little bit more empathy and understand what other people were going through, it probably would have been easier for me. But the funny thing is that we just had our 20 year reunion and I went back to Batminster Eiffel. And I remember when I graduated, I said, I do not want to see a single person for the rest of my life. Uh, you know, these, these people, I'm going to move as far away as I can. And it, it kind of settled over time. And when we got back in this reunion, there was a core of people that I communicated, not over the years at all, but that back in school I had. They kind of went through the same thing. They, they told me they had experienced it very much the same, that it was volatile, that they were always scared that they didn't know what was going on with friendships and everything. It wasn't just me. They, they experienced it the same. And that reunion had a bit of a healing power. Mm. So, like, you know, we, we put up a WhatsApp group there. We discussed it. I went straight out and I said, you know what? I, I, I felt like sometimes I was so scared to go to school that I had stomach aches. And they came out. The boys and the girls, they were saying the same thing. And some one of the guys, he said... It, it occurred to him how much he hurt the other kids by making fun of them because he was feeling insecure. And we were just like laying it out there. And it was it was really cathetic and, and really a wonderful experience. I find that to be so incredibly interesting and inspiring because I also, I mean, I was totally bullied um, for most of my uh, middle school, elementary school um, until then I had to learn how to fight later, later on in life, which I'm not proud of, uh-huh. but it was, <laughs> but, it, it, but, but like, it's so interesting because we do not get the opportunity to think about like what uh, the other kids who are bullying others, like what they're going through and the reasons mm-hmm. why they're doing that. And I think it's interesting that you said, you know, like your own role, I think, when we are bullied and we go through these experiences, we feel like we're the only one. And we feel like, you know, we do feel like poor me, <laughs> like this, this happened yeah. to me, you know, like, oh my gosh, but it, it's, it's, it, it does take an emotional intelligence, which we'll get into later yeah. Yeah. to be able to identify that. So I think that that's, you know, I think that's just really inspiring. So thank you for sharing that perspective. Yeah. I, I wish that was a bit something that someone would have taught, taught me to do. Because once I learned it, I applied it and it works like a charm. Never had that problem again. Probably never will, you know, but I I just didn't have the skills and nobody taught me. And I was just kind of bumbling around um, and didn't, wasn't lucky enough to, you know, uh, get it right by myself. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've mentioned uh, in the past, you know, having a a friend who, who committed suicide. Did that journey impact you and reaffirm like your commitment to want to go into psychology? 
No, that was pretty much the opposite. That scared the bejeez out of me. And it kind of, it kind of um, showed me the responsibility that comes along with having clients. And mm. then I thought to myself, what happened if I would meet a client that would need help and I would not be able to help that client in that moment? I Would I ever be able to forgive myself? Um, How and, old are you? Oh, my goodness. Um, I, I think 16. Uh -huh. Around 16. And um, it, it took a long time for me just to process that. You know, our whole grade was could not fathom what happened, you know? Um, and it, it was just really showed me the responsibility and the, the impact that mental health has. And this was uh, how many years ago when people weren't talking about mental health? Mental oh, health yeah. is kind of like a new thing, right? So that was, it was uh, mental illness. It was scary. It was, you know, yeah, that, that really... Um, showed me that I, I have to take this seriously and I have responsibility and I have to be sure that I want to carry this responsibility. Well, you eventually decided to double down and, and, and go get your PhD in clinical psychology and also go to school for systemic family therapy. So what did, what did your educational journey look like? And you know, what other challenges did you face on that journey? Well, um, I think one of the reasons why I was able to get my degree, even though it took like 100 years, is because studying psychology for me was natural. It, it didn't feel like learning something that is alien or new. It, it felt like remembering. So when mm. we would learn about, you know, behavioral psychology or, or, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy or something, it made sense. It resonated with me. So it was easier for me to to stick to it. On the other hand, <laughs> they lie to you when they say that psychology is not like 50% statistics because I'm really, really bad at math. And so that was my biggest challenge. And when I, <laughs> I applied for psychology, <laughs> yeah, it's like embarrassingly bad, like potato level bad. Um, they said, oh, it's only two years of statistics. And I'm like, okay, I can do two years of statistics. Oh, but after that, it's test theory and then it's diagnostics and it's all the way to the end and it's probably 40 to 50 percent of, of your studying mm. and I had a tutor the whole time and it I think my brain is just not wired for it like we would do a, a, a math setting and then I'd go I I got it I got it and then two hours later my tutor would say okay do this and I'd be like oh, it looks like Japanese to me. And they're like, you just solved exactly <laughs> this equation. <laughs> like, I swear to God, I've never seen it before. <laughs> oh my God. You yeah. and I are on the same planet. Like I, <laughs> I struggled so bad. And to this day, if you threw something at me, like I will avoid it at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> you get really good at dodging, right? <laughs> yeah, I do. Like if I see any kind of mathematical formulas of any kind, I'm out the yeah. door. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's like my partner makes fun of me because he's like um okay so 37 20 plus 14 um can you equate how much our our meal is going to cost and i'm like give me a second to calculator yeah <laughs> i'm so glad that 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 our phones have those apps because seriously yeah. every yeah. every day and every yeah. time i go to the restaurant because yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, yeah. you know, like the challenges you faced were, um, you know, going through math and, and trying to get your numbers <laughs> right. But, you know, what were what were the environments like for you? Because, you know, psychology is an interesting field because, you know, there are a lot of uh, women in the field, but it sort of is based on um, a lot of male uh, discoveries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what did that look like for you? Um, I think when I, when I was studying, so I, I got my master's in 2013. Um, I wasn't a, a feminist at that point. And I was kind of like, you know, still sleepwalking my way through society and mm. to those questions. Right. And it, in a way it, it repeats what society does that all these female populated fields are led by men, my men, like cooks, you know, uh, and um, I mean, chefs and um, psychologists and um, doctors and things like that. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't experience it as that way because it just didn't occur to me. That was the way things were. Right. And, yeah. and only started questioning it, you know, looking back and looking at the statistics about women in mental health. Um, <clears throat> I guess the the biggest impact that studying had on me from the beginning other than you know doing something that i found very interesting was that i had to go through 30 hours of what's called self-discovery and it's therapy practically right you just have to if you want your master's in germany you need to have self-discovery so you have to go through therapy yourself to understand what it's like Mm. to be on the receiving end and despite all the stories that I just told you, <laughs> I went into my first session super cocky. Like, yeah, you know, I'm a psychology student. I figured it all out. Like, I don't need no therapy. <laughs> Three <laughs> sessions in, I'm in tears. I'm like, oh, my God, and this and that. And, and like, starting to process a lot of the things that I didn't even know that had a huge impact on my life. And that... I think that self-discovery is more than learning what has prevailed for me to dedicate my life, my life to psychology and to helping other people because this, the, the agency and the joy of growth and the, the power of being able to work through trauma was so profound to me that I thought I wish everybody in the world would have the opportunity and the ability to do this. And I'm going to contribute in which way I can to, to at least give people a glimpse. You know, that's so interesting because, you know, a lot of us that are like kind of forced, I love, I love that word self-discovery. It's like, there's something like empowering about that, you know, like, Oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to engage in some self-discovery right now. And I have a therapist Mm -hmm. Right. Versus like, oh, you're going to go get therapy because there's so much shame around mental mm-hmm. health in the industry, mm-hmm. especially then. I mean, now it's starting to become a little bit more mainstream, but yet still there's a stigma. Mm-hmm. So, you know, during the time that you were sort of forced, if you will, to, <laughs> to have to engage in this, like, yeah. did your did your thoughts change about like how important just even your everyday person um, how important it is for them to go through processes like this? Oh my God, yes, yes, absolutely. I, I, 
I developed the belief and, you know, I still will put my last dime behind this belief that everybody should go through therapy, at least 30 sessions. <laughs> and, you know, ideally, and that there is going to be phases in your life where you're going to need it more and you're going to need it less. And there's a couple of years, you'll be fine. And then there's going to be a life challenge. And then in the meantime, you will have grown and you'll be able to face different challenges that you haven't yet and, and, and you know, mm -hmm. different parts of self-discovery. So it's, it's a lifelong journey. And I, I have this utopian vision that if everybody in the world would go through that and really be open to it and, and embrace it, there would be no evil in the world because hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And if you are living a cycle of trauma that has been passed down by your parents, unknowingly, unwittingly, up to the point of our genetics, you are, are just, you know, you're, you're lost, you're in a hamster wheel of pain and you're gonna conflict, you're gonna inflict pain. And yeah. stepping off that hamster wheel is what happens if you really embrace therapy. I agree with that because, you know, when I was, I had a very traumatic childhood myself, really traumatic and um, very ungrounded. And I was one of the first people in my family. I'm the oldest of uh, five growing up, um, mm -hmm. six total. But um, I started therapy when I was in middle school and, um, you know, it kind of was forced on me a little bit because I was bullied and I was going through a lot of things at the time, but I have literally maintained it. I'm like the only one in my family that has sustained therapy throughout my life. It's not like I'm going every week. It's, it's like you said, it's a cyclical mm -hmm. thing. It's like mm -hmm. life throws you curveballs. I launch a new mm -hmm. company, like, and, and mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be that you're like in a depressed mode or even in mm -hmm. crisis. Like it, mm -hmm. I love the word self-discovery because yeah. it does feel like a self-discovery. I have learned so much about myself through mm -hmm. all of this. And the funny thing is, is like, sometimes I like that you said, like, oh, you walk in, like, cocky, like, oh, I've solved this part of my life. Like, <laughs> yeah. I've solved this. Like, to this day, I still have these aha revelations yeah. about my childhood or even not just my childhood, but just like, mm -hmm. oh, my gosh, this person when I was 28 said something and it triggered an old response, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, and mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And so, like, yes. a preconditioned response, we are, we are always triggered at any given moment. Yeah. And so it allows me to, like, be able to stand in front of that and not go into, like, some sort of bigger crisis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It gives you the, the power over reaction and action, right? Just, just the other day, I was, I was upset about something, and I could feel myself going into that cycle of negative thoughts, mm. right? And then I took a step back, you know, this meta position and said, I know what's happening, and Right now, I don't have the power to change it because I'm really upset, but at least I can watch it and I'm not going to act on it, you know? Mm, so yeah. that, and that, if not power, then what is, right? Yeah. Because you can still acknowledge, like, I'm pissed off right now, but you yes. know what? I don't have to, like, go and yes. make it worse by reacting. Yes, exactly. And, and where does that come from? You can, like, peel the layers. Like, I'm really upset. Why am I upset? Because I'm scared. Why am I scared? Because this hurts. Why does this hurt? You know, and then you can like really have a birthday. Sometimes you can't act upon it because, you know, you're feeling it right now. But it you 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 you're not just being a, a ping ball being bounced around. You, you, you can see it. You can you know, you have power over it. 
Yeah. So, you know, I love talking about, you know, emotional intelligence um, and you're definitely redefining what that means for us and how we engage and learn about that. But, you know, at what point did you pivot from psychology in terms of like clinical psychology and like, you know, having a practice? Did you ever practice? And, and at what point did you pivot? Yes, um, I practice both in a private practice and um, with the NHS, the National Health System, which is in, in the UK, they're the free health system. Mm. And um, I, I pivoted when I reached when I started working for the NHS because um, I was working for a trust called NELF and it was for young adults, um, uh, mood and eating disorders. And when you study psychology, you learn all about diagnostics and tools and treatments and, and, and symptoms, but you do not learn about the healthcare system. And I was meeting all these young people who had been on a waiting list for half a year or longer to get like six sessions of CBT, which is about a third of the recommended um, uh, sessions. Um, and I'm thinking like, what is happening to them? And a, a professor at UCL here in London said that if every psychologist in the UK, and it's probably very similar to the US, maybe even worse, worked a 50 hour shift with no lunch, we could only take care of 12% of the population that actually needs mental health care. There just aren't alarming. Exactly. And, and I'm not scalable. I can work myself to the bone and I will not be able to reach halfway enough people that would need my expertise. Right. So I was thinking, what can you do to, to help? How can you scale psychology? And this wasn't like in 2016, and there was a lot of research that showed that web-based intervention was as good as face-to-face -face therapy or as pharmaceuticals, but with no side effects, which pharmaceuticals obviously have, right? Interesting. So I was thinking, okay, if you have a program, especially on your phone, everybody, like if you could do it on the loo, you know, it's something that everybody has access to. So I went and, and the I loo is the bathroom, right? <laughs> oh yes, sorry. <laughs> because yes. you're you're in London now, so like, yeah, we we have to. I, I'm hip to it, but yeah, we have to let the the, the listeners yes. know the bathroom. The loo is yes, the bathroom. <laughs> I've been London where we do all of our where we do all of our app based activities. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we I, I developed an, an application that because people were moving privately away from desktop towards apps on smartphones um, that um, over four weeks significantly lowered depression anxiety levels up to a beta blocker, which is a pharmaceutical with no side effects. And I was thinking, yeah, I can save the world from depression and anxiety for like $9.99 a month or something like that, right? But <laughs> the retention rates for mental health programs are really, really bad, right? So the American Psychology Association says, on average, people spend about two minutes on a mental health app and then they delete it from their phone. And that's not gonna have an impact on anybody. So uh, I'm kind of like jumping ahead of how, how we got to gamification. So I'll just take a step back and say, when I, I found a way to have a product that is scalable where anyone with any budget can afford it and we'll be able to have access to it, even if they live on the top of a mountain, you know, in, in, I don't know, Kenya, for example, if they have one bar of Wi-Fi, they can do this mental health tool. 
that was what I, I was looking to do. And that's what, what kind of inspired me to do my PhD is I, I didn't want to just add knowledge to the knowledge pool. I wanted to leave a tool behind that would help people. Oh my gosh. I love that, Celia. I I remember first reading about you when our executive producer, Brianna Machado Rush, yeah. you know, um, she sent me, <laughs> hi, Brianna. So hi, Brianna. she sent me um, a TechCrunch article about you in 2016 when yes. you were launching Psych Apps. And my first thought was, wow, you know, like y- she is stunning <laughs> and brilliant. And then my second thought was like, why would you want to speak at Wonder Woman Tech? Because we were launching Wonder Woman Tech London. And Brianna was like, oh, my God, I found this amazing woman. And by the way, <laughs> she kind of looks like Gal Gadot, Wonder Woman at the <laughs> time. Like she was- <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. You, like, seriously, she was like, oh, my God. And she's out saving the world. Um. <laughs> And so I remember reading this and I was like, can you find her? And like, you know, Brianna went and, and researched and somehow found you and emailed you. But and and you ended up being like the most amazing and down earth and genuinely like a lovey, loving, lovely human being, um, you know, a, a pleasure to work with and know. And so like it's it's interesting to go back and hear your story because we never talked about like your childhood and like some of the your initial beginnings of like how you even were sparked to create the legacy you're creating it's fascinating to me thank you thank you it's um i remember getting the email and they're like would you like to speak at wonder woman tech i'm like female entrepreneurs coming from the States to London? Hell yeah. <laughs> and I remember I was so nervous. It was one of my first talks and I was like <laughs> practicing. I remember that. I remember that because, and that was also super surprising to me because I'm like, oh my gosh, this, this woman like is poised and she knows what to do. And she, and it was so actual, you know, for me, like, I think it's like one of those reaffirming moments that we're all just regular yes. human people, right? Like there, so there was this perception that I had of you, like, oh my God, she's like untouchable, unattainable to like <laughs> get to come to to my because at the time, you know, Wonder Woman Tech was like that was just two years old at the time. So I was like, yeah. why would she want to come over? And then you were like, I'm scared. Like I've never really <laughs> like and we were like, you know, holding your hand, talking you through like your talk. And and so it, I just look back at that and I'm like, it's really yeah. so inspiring it's such an inspiring story but since then like I've been able to like just watch you absolutely blossom like you beta tested your EQ game launched by psych apps you went on to win pitch competition so you had to learn how to pitch which by the way I'm so proud of you when you got to pitch (laughs) to royalty and, I know, right? <laughs> right, yeah. So, and you were also accepted into Techstars Berlin. So, walk yeah. us through that crazy whirlwind of birthing your app, fundraising, pitching to royalty, and developing your concepts. Um. So it, it was it was really a journey. the The actual idea to start a company and not just do research happened during a restaurant when I was sitting next to a friend of mine and I was telling him about this um, uh, um, study or, or trial that I wanted to do. And he's like, you need to make it a business. And I'm like, what? What? How does that work? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and he sat me down and he kind of like helped me 
formulate my first business plan. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I went off and I, I remember pitching to my first investor, investor and he said, do you have traction? And I said, what is traction? <laughs> you actually said that directly to him? <laughs> I was like, what, what do you mean? What is traction? And he's like, okay, skip, skip, oh, go away. <laughs> oh my God. I love that story. I love it. <laughs> and then it was, I, I found you know, when they say it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a city to build a startup. I've had so many people really pitch in their time and their energy. I, I think they saw something in myself, my, my enthusiasm, as well as that this was a product that was needed. When I started with mental health tech, people just, you know, most of them were just shaking their head like mental health will never be digital. You know, mm, yeah. <laughs> I was one, one of the very first when I did my research, there were 50 applications that had depression in their keywords. We're looking at 5000 right now. Right. And it was a journey of me bouncing off of mentors and friendly people in the tech space that really took the time, gave me feedback. A lot of it was, you know, very um what is it? Constructive. <laughs> so lots of work. <laughs> and then keep on, on, on pitching. So um, I got into Techstars Berlin. The year before, I applied for Techstars MetLife. And I was flown into the last round to New York. And I pitched in front of the board of MetLife and um, didn't get it, right? So it's not like I magically um, got all the things on a platter. It, it really took a lot of time and me going over and over again and going from event to event and listening talking to people, getting people to help me with, with mentoring and ideas and bouncing ideas off them and then putting myself out there over and over again. Um, and yeah, with, with time, it started getting momentum. And then I think the real tipping point is when I got my, my team together. So um, I have an amazing team right now of, of really highly creative, highly intelligent, super what do you say, uh, um, high energy professional people that every time when they introduce their self, I get like the chills, like they're working with me, you know? And, and that is when, because a lone person can only go so far with an idea and even money. Yeah. When you have yeah. the right team, that's when it gets momentum. And I, I, I sometimes say like, I feel like I built this little hut with sticks and mud that's called EQ. And then I have like these Ferraris parked in it, which are my, my team members, you know? <laughs> I love yeah. it. I, it's just so interesting to like witness that evolution and to watch like the iterations of your app even come alive because like, yeah, they've, they've also changed like the characters. So tell yes. us a little bit about more about EQ. Yes. the actual app. Yeah, so we learned the hard way that people don't stick to mental health um, products, right? We learned it ourselves. Um, we had, um, after I did the clinical trial, I could prove that it was effective. I could not get people to stick to it for even four weeks. And at the beginning, I thought, okay, you know, maybe I just did a really bad app. But I went back to the books and I saw that everybody is struggling with these troubles, right? And I am mostly interested in a target audience of young adults for multiple reasons, um, mostly because they have so many life challenges and changes, like, you know, from 18 to 35, you leave home, you have your first proper relationship, maybe your first kids, um, you go to uni or get your first job. There's so many things that you have to, to learn and do and implement during this time. 
Plus, most of the symptoms manifest then for the first time. So if you're going to have a depression, it's probably going to be in your late teens, early 20s that you're going to struggle with the first um, symptoms. Mm. Um, and I was looking at them at, at an audience and say, how can we get people to stick to digital therapy? And it's kind of understanding that people don't, because if you're too depressed to get up and take a shower, you're not going to work on your self-help diary or your books or your CBT exercises or something like that. You just don't have the energy and the motivation. But 70% of our audience are casual gamers. And there's a lot of research that shows that gaming casually is good for your mental health. So we thought, okay, we are going to become the vitamin gummy bears of the mental health space. And make... <laughs> like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> make a game. So not just add gamification. So, you know, if you, you, you do your CBT exercise, you get a badge or something like that. No, make a game and smuggle the mental health into the game pretty much. So when you go into EQ, the, the new version, you um, learn about the lore, the backstory of, of um, the game. You set up your own avatar. And then before each level, you go into a what's called space between spaces and your guide teaches you a psychological skill. And then you are sent off on a mission that is written, by the way, by DC uh, Comics and Marvel uh, comic writer. And you have to implement those psychological skills to be able to level up and collect gems. So, you know, you'll, you'll meet, for example, um, you'll, you'll have to help um, Shakespeare during his lost years. Or uh, you have to save um, a, a kingdom that is fighting against trolls not to go into war and things like that. Um, I and love it. When... <laughs> Thank you. The, the whole idea is that you learn the psychological skills and you can implement them and practice them in a low-cost environment, which is the game. And when you learn something in a fun way, you release dopamine, which is, of course, you know, it feels good. It's novelty, but also it's like a post-it note for your memory. So 82% of our users say they practice the skill they learned in the game within a week. And that's why our retention numbers are so high is because people go out there, they learn a skill. Let's say our first skill is emotional bids, bids for connection and attention. And depending on how people react to that habitually, we can predict by 85% if they are going to still be friends or lovers or colleagues within the next six years, right? So that is such a powerful skill to know that people, it, they, they say they practice it with their, their partner, with their mom, their boss or something, and they see the reaction and they go, wow, what else can I learn? They come back to the game and then they learn more skills. Brilliant. Let's smuggle some mental health resources into a game. How many of yeah. us need that in our lives? I'm going to say all of us. We're, yes. we're going to take a break for today's Pioneering Women segment. Today's pioneering woman is Jocelyn Jackson. Jackson is a New York Times and USA Today best-selling novelist. Her books have been translated into a dozen languages, have three times been number one book since pick, and have twice won Georgia Author of the Year awards. She serves on the board of Reforming Arts, a nonprofit that runs education in prison and reentry programs. 
Reforming arts fosters the development of critical and creative thinking skills and encourages students to build livable lives both during and post-incarceration. Through this organization, Jocelyn has taught creative writing, composition, and literature inside Georgia's Maximum Security Facility for Women. Thank you for your pioneering contributions, Jocelyn Jackson. Innovators, we are back with Celia Litvin talking about being exposed to diverse cultures, having an insatiable curiosity for the human condition, pitching to royalty, and launching an app that gamifies mental health awareness and management. So Celia, another part of your life was spent in the modeling world. So can you share with us what that experience was like for you and did you enjoy modeling oh yes very much um so i was scouted for the first time when i was 16 um in an h&m store and my mother was like over my dead body are you gonna become a model (laughs) (laughs) so that didn't happen and then i was uh, scouted again when i was 18 by a small uh, cologne agency cologne is a city in in germany and by then i didn't have to have my mom's signature so i kind of like Last half year, I, I, I snuck a few shootings um, in there <laughs> behind her back. My poor mom. <laughs> um, and then, of course, my agency called her when they said, can you please tell your daughter she has a casting? And my mom was like, Celia! <laughs> you could hear it, like, vibrate <laughs> through the universe. <laughs> and for the first 10 years, she was sure I'd end up as, like, a drug addict under a, under a bridge, you know, heroin or something like that. Um, but thankfully, <laughs> thankfully that did not happen. Um, Is yeah, she so, German? Yes, she's German. She's the most German person you will ever meet if you met her. <laughs> yeah, I, I I heard it in in the in your you know example of her just now in your voice. I'm like, she must be. <laughs> yes, when I was a kid, people would stop us because I had long eyelashes, and they would say, "Oh, your daughter, she has beautiful long eyelashes." She says. Don't say that to my daughter. Tell her about her. <laughs> she doesn't have a bad accent. I'm, I'm making fun of her. I'm so sorry, mom. She said, don't tell her that she's beautiful. Tell her that she's smart or that she's doing something interesting or something like that. So she was really against, you know, anything superficial. And then, you know, I'm like, yay, modeling. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it was it was a really discovery. And, and you could probably gather from what I said about my mom for so far that she was very, very strict. So I lived in this very protected bubble. And then when I moved away from home, I traveled the world for about a year. And my first stunt was to be on stay in South Africa in Cape Town. And it was the first time I was in Africa. The first time I was for modeling, I was like in a, in a modeling house. And um, it was my first proper jobs and everything. And I remember coming into a room that was like 50 models waiting for their turn at the casting and going like, Oh my God, everybody here is so cool. It wasn't even about them being beautiful or anything. I just thought they were so cool. It's like, you know, you go into high school and you meet that cool click and that's all the people you ever meet. Like everybody's, of course they're riddled with anxiety and insecurities and everything, but you can't see that. No. <laughs> so, and then it was, it was really a whirlwind of a time, right? I went to over 72 different countries over 17 years, um, I was always kind of like your, 
your pretty much average catalog beauty model. So I never did anything exciting like a Vogue cover or, you know, Cosmopolitan shoot or something like that. But I, I earned good money. I lived a very uh, free life and was able to experience different cultures and, you know, make for a short time, I made a lot of money and I spent that, <laughs> you know, did you watch <laughs> Sex in the City? Yeah. And remember that one episode where she says like, you've made so much money over the years, over the years, like, what did you do with it? And she says, I have shoes. <laughs> right? Yes. Yes, exactly. That was me. Like I have bags. Yay. I could have bought a house. <laughs> right. But no. <laughs> And where and, are those bags now, Celia? Yes, they are. They've all been sold when I started my startup. Like, you know, one after the other, I do not have a single bag left from, from those days, which is really too bad because some of, some of them would be vintage by now. But I, the, the good thing is I, I'm not so much into that anymore. It used to be very much about, you know, um, your, your typical brands and the standing and stuff like that. Um, yeah, and then during the last 10 years, I started studying psychology. So it was a... It was a, a very interesting mix where I kind of was out of two worlds again. So I wasn't completely in the modeling world because I, you know, I considered myself more of a, a psychologist to be. And I didn't really connect with my fellow students because, you know, a lot of them were 22, 23, 24 year old students that came straight from school and hadn't, you know, left Germany or maybe, you know, France or something like that. And, and I was modeling, you know. So, um, it was it was interesting. I I didn't really feel connected to either worlds, neither the study world because of the modeling, and not to the modeling world because of the studying. So I was always drifting a little bit homeless, and that seems to be a bit of a theme in my life because I live in the UK. I've lived in the States. Um, I don't really feel 100% at home in the UK. Uh, I, I like I'm not emotionally attached to the UK. I don't think I want to live in the States right now. Um, and <laughs> sorry. Um, and in, in Germany, you know, doesn't feel like home either. So it's, it's always been a little bit floaty for me. So, you know, you've been having to be in, it sounds like a theme is like self-discovery and you once said like, you know, traveling the world, you know, helped you try to find your true self. So what have you learned about yourself through your sort of pilgrimage you've taken? I, I think the, the best thing that I took away from my life so far is how resilient I am, right? Yeah. I like to joke that my spirit animal is a cockroach. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, will be, yes, <laughs> I will be the last woman standing. Like, you can step on me and squish me and everything. And I'll just be like, I'm fine. <laughs> I just like, I mean, just knowing who you are and I can't make any just like, no, I can't see any similarities at all between the world's most hated creature. <laughs> and the most resilient creature. Like, have you, you ever tried killing a cockroach? Oh my God, those things. Yeah, you're right. You are a hundred. They're, they're, they've got more than nine lives. That's for sure. So they have to yes. beat. <laughs> yes. like other people like i'm a jaguar i'm like no i'm a cockroach <laughs> <laughs> now i have to think about yes. what my spirit animal is like i've always said like yeah. i'm the hawk like 
I'm yeah. a hawk. I have my my spirit animal is the hawk. Um yes. or fe- like the phoenix of the phoenix like actually like was real. Yeah, it existed. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what do you feel has been the most challenging part of your career and what mistakes have you learned from? Cause I know we all make them. Oh goodness. Um, I think the biggest business mistake that I've made was not having a business model in place before the product. Um, and, and I would say, I say this to everyone because I get a lot of people reaching out to me like, Oh, I have this idea about mental health app, blah, blah, bloop. And then they want to hear what I think about it. Right. And many of the times they do exactly the same thing I did, which is like, I have this product it can help people. It's evidence-based. It's great. People love it, but you cannot make a dime off of it because you have no business model. If you want to scale, you need a business model that is proven that people will actually pay for it. Otherwise you have a very expensive hobby. (laughs) So (laughs) we pivoted, we have over a hundred thousand organic downloads on our first version of the app, but we did not have a business model. So we had to actually pivot from the old version to the new version, which has a lot of um, uh, upgrades in it, but the, the most substantial one is that it's um, we're mainly B two B right now, and that um, we can actually make money off of it despite it being affordable for everyone. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, I'm so and so we can all learn from your mistake. Yes, please um, don't. But, do uh, but most of us do do that. So you're like, I mean, I can't. I mean, I've done that more than once you know where you're like already in the air and you're building the plane as it's already flying yeah. and hoping you don't yeah. hit the ground and crash yeah. um so we've all been experiencing a pandemic right mm-hmm. like how has that impacted your business and also in what ways have you grown as a leader um i I know this sounds terrible, really terrible, and I'm, I'm not happy about it, but having a mental health product right now is actually a good place to be, right? Mm-hmm. And so our downloads and requests have gone up by like 160% since COVID hit the first time. And everybody's being forced to look for mental health solutions for their employees, for their families, for themselves. Um, It's been mental health is being pushed into the forefront of social discourse. So like we fast forwarded five to 10 years because of COVID. So from a business perspective, we it's been it's been good for business. Terrible, terrible thing to say. Um, well, on I mean, the other hand, is it? Yeah. Is it? Because, like, I feel like, and I'm just going to give you perspective now. Let's sit in Le- Dr. Lisa May's seat now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, but, like, you know, but perspective is this. Because, like, if if we were going to experience something like this horrible pandemic that we've been sitting inside of, isn't it amazing that we now have this tool that we can turn to? as we're dealing with isolation and depression, you know, because, you know, a year ago I was suicidal and I talked about that for the first time, uh, at my summit, uh, my virtual summit in September, you don't even know this, Celia, but, um, no, you know, I, I, uh, uh, last week was the year anniversary where I considered, suicide and it was only and it was not I'm not a suicidal person so it really can happen to anyone because I'm like the like Mm -hmm. I'm I'm the one that saves people 
Like, I'm like, yeah. what do you mean? What are you talking about? Get that, yeah. like, idea out your brain. But, like, I had gone through so much trauma. Um, I mean, you years before, you were actually the first person that helped me through my head injury I, I received in 2017. Um, and ever since then, actually, I've just been, it's shifted my, my, the way that I think has changed a little bit. Cause you know, head injuries do kind of bring up more bouts of depression, which I learned mm -hmm. later on. Um, mm -hmm. and you were literally like at the hospital with me, like you, we left, we left that conference together yeah. and, and you yeah. really were, um, a resource for me during that time. But ever since then, I've tr struggled with depression off and on, but, Last year, the the pandemic, like being isolated, I live alone, I'm single, my dog, my dog mm -hmm. can't talk back to me. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, having a tool and a resource like this could have been a defining moment for me, you know, mm -hmm. where I could have been able to work through things before it got to that, that, that place. And, you know, I'm being mm -hmm. very vulnerable right now, but I'm so glad that I had a higher you know, power that kind of interjected. It was like, yeah. no, Lisa May, like you are like, get your ass back in gear. Let's, let's do this. Right. But yeah. So I would say like th this tool is a blessing. Yeah. I, I am, I am profoundly grateful that I have something that can help people and that they enjoy using and do use. And, and one of the things that I think is really, really important about your story is that you say you were at a point where you considered suicide yeah. and now yeah. a year later you are blossoming you are continuing, you're, you're growing like, you know, you're the phoenix. Yeah. And anyone who hears that and they are at that point and they think it will never be better should just listen to your story and say, you know what? It would have been such a loss for all the wonderful things that are coming your way for, for that moment. And we need to fight through it. So, yeah. you know, keep, keep, keep sharing that. Keep sharing that, please, because there are people out there that hear it at the right time, and that's all they need to, to know there there is hope. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I feel, you know, we talked about earlier that shame and that stigma. Mm -hmm. I can honestly say probably had, had people, had tools like yours not exist more, right? Have we not mm -hmm. started to have more dialogue around mental health and the fact that we all struggle with different... Mm -hmm aspects of that right it's really i mean there, there was a study that showed that survivors of suicide the the second that they actually committed to it not committed it but committed to it say say i'm gonna do this and then you know fell for it that the the instant they were like oh i actually don't want this right yes so there 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 is hope and, and it just needs to be communicated in a way that's powerful enough to kind of hit through the haze and and the pain and everything and i, I think telling stories is is that powerful um, it is yeah so somewhere in all of this you had twins last summer <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> i think you stunned everyone who knew you because <laughs> you literally quietly went through a pregnancy yes. and then just like casually sent an email that was basically like surprise <laughs> i've had twins and I, which was like an entire shock to me because I had just seen you like for your birthday, like the year before in London. And so I was like, wait a minute, you were, wait, when did, because you had to have gotten pregnant <laughs> soon after that birthday. I mean, like, so I was yes. like, you just had twins. Like what? So Celia, 
Well, like, I want to hear the story. The bees. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know the birds and the bees. Like, don't don't tell us about that. Don't go that far back. Let's, let's... <laughs> when mommy and daddy really love each other. <laughs> oh my god! You've been I felt isolation for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel I'm like wait. So what happened, Celia? <laughs> Oh my god, I'm like I'm like blushing over here because I'm like that it did sound like I just asked you that question, but no. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. No, so it was it was really funny because um I I was very lucky because I had my baby moon in February when people could still travel. And it was just I had enough of a bump to, you know, be able to sit out there and let my my belly just hang and eat without feeling <laughs> judged <laughs> but not big enough to not be able to travel comfortably and then after that was lockdown 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 and you know if you look at people on a zoom call or something it always cuts out somewhere around their chest right so i was sitting there like eight months pregnant and one time i remember i was i was um, talking to unilever as a client and it was a team meeting and everything. And my cat was making a wreck. So I stood up to get the cat out. Everybody's like, oh, my God, are you pregnant? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, oh, yes, yes, I am. <laughs> oh, so I, I didn't post about it. And um, I'm I'm kind of a little bit um, social media lazy anyway. So I, um, I, I usually, if I do post, it's about my work or something that I find, like, super interesting. Or, you know, I'm, I'm having a moment and want to share it on Facebook. Um so I, I just recently did my first post on, on Facebook and there are seven months, long took me seven months to, to openly say I, I've had kids. And they're, they're little COVID babies. They've never seen their grandparents, never been held by a friend, um, have been in their tiny little bubble. And again, this sounds terrible, but I mean, if there was a time for me personally in my situation to have, have to stay at home and be locked down, this would have been the best time because especially with twins, you are so busy. You cannot, and you do not have the energy, or at least I did not have the energy to like go on dinners or something like that. And because everybody was locked down, I, I didn't have FOMO. Like I yeah, wasn't I was watching everybody say, have no fun. FOMO. <laughs> no FOMO. I was like, you know, going to bed at eight o'clock, <laughs> waking up three times a night to, to feed them and not missing out a single thing. So other than the social aspect and, you know, not having had a, a, um, uh, what do you call it, a baby shower and not introducing the baby to the family, it's been actually um, very easy to handle. Wow. So it's like, you know, my first pregnancy is like, bam, let's just get it done, boy and a girl. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, check <laughs> I need half a kid, a fence, and a dog, and I'm statistically in a, in a sweet spot. <laughs> I yeah. love it. And and so is the is the is the father hands on? Like, did he take time off as well? Yes. Yeah, so he went on a sabbatical, and he's been completely dedicated. The, the first week when um, I came home from my cesarean, I could like barely go three steps. It was so painful. He did all the diaper changing and, uh, you know, carrying them around and he's completely smitten with them. They've wrapped him around his, his uh, their little tiny, tiny little chubby uh, pinkies. And it's, it's been a, um, a 
a really beautiful time as a family, even though I still, I, I'm a mom and I, I guess I'm a full blooded mom, but I don't feel like a mom. You know what I mean? I, <laughs> I still don't feel like an adult. It's, it's weird. <laughs> it's a, no, I get it. <laughs> Well, because, you yeah. know, you had kids later in life, which is like, you know, for me, yeah. I haven't had kids yet. So I'm actually like, hmm, maybe there's maybe I could still do this because you and I are the same age. Uh- <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think the, the good part about it is that you, you've you been there, done that, right? So it's OK to dedicate your life to a third party or second party. Yeah. So that that's a, a wonderful thing. Um. On the other hand, don't wait too long because you do not have the energy you had when you were 25. And Oh, I don't have the energy just to get up and do like regular basic things now. Yes. Like I'm like, yes. like you're I mean, it does happen after you're 40, you're just like, oh yes. like what they say is true. Cause when you're younger, <laughs> yeah. you're just like, oh, that's just like that's not gonna happen to me. Not me, not on my watch. Um <laughs> like there's literally like nothing I can do. I'm like, I'm like at like to this day, like Googling supplements I can take to like yes. counteract <laughs> the effects of nature right now. Yes. yes. So like there is how a has... bone in my body that doesn't ache. I know. Oh my God. And I'm like, my knee is hurting. Why is my knee hurting? <laughs> I'm like about to get on my spin bike and my knee's like, no, you're not. Um. So how has motherhood changed you? And can you share with us how you create balance between being a new mom mm-hmm. and a CEO of an immersive tech company? Okay, so I am super duper hyper privileged because my partner supports us financially enough because I would not be able to support a four-headed family with my um, salary as of now. So that being a way when say like, oh, you know, she does it all. I do not do it all by myself. I I am supported. Um, The second thing is that because my amazing team, you know, my Ferraris (laughs) and my little stick and mud hut, (laughs) (laughs) Um, my, my co-founder, Vanessa Hirsch Angus, she has taken on so much of the work specifically, you know, operations. And one of the favorite sentences that she says, God bless her is leave it with me. And I'm like, okay, I'll leave it with you. Every CEO and founder's dream is to hear those words, right? Yes. Yes. And, and she will actively search for things to to help it make it easier and she's also a mom of two but obviously they're a little bit older so she she knows what i'm going through and i have been able to find the balance where i'm just working enough time that the guilt doesn't overcome me and i have the feeling that i'm connected enough with my kids and not abandoning my my work at the same time and i don't think that a lot of women have that freedom because they're not their own bosses or because, you know, they don't have the co-founders that can can help them find that balance. So every day I count my blessings and I'm, I'm so grateful. And I'm just also seeing the struggles that come with that and how much, you know, fine tuning it took me to get to where I am and thinking like, OK, you know, if I'm blessed with success at one point, you know, financial success, one of the things I want to do is make it easier for female founders to have access to childcare in a way that, you know, they, they don't feel like they have to abandon either themselves or their children. Yeah. That's so powerful. Well, we love being vulnerable here at the Wonder Woman Tech Show. So I, can you share something with us that you've never shared with anyone else before? 
Yeah, so I guess something that's quite new and that um, I struggled with a little bit because I thought of myself as a psychologist, as being a professional, I should not be vulnerable to it, was that um, I uh, struggled with postpartum anxiety and um, had to have um, some therapy for that and, and practice the skills that I preach every day. I mean, hello, <laughs> to be able to overcome it. And that it, it had a, <laughs> a, a large impact on um, my life these last couple of months. And I'm, I'm finally in a good place. But I guess the, the good thing I could say getting out of it is that now I know what proper anxiety feels like. Yeah. And it's, it's uh, as a psychologist, a lot of the times you, you may not really know what people are going through. And I do not suggest you should know what it's like to be depressed and anxious or, you know, suicidal or something like that. But it, 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 it feels good to that. I, you know, I've experienced it and that the tools that I'm teaching actually help. I think that's yeah. that's a good takeaway from that. But it it took me a while to recognize, and the symptoms were very unpleasant. And the, the main reason why I said I really need to do something about this and not just wait for it to go away, because sometimes when hormones you know readjust and time goes on, the babies get out of the infant stage, it, they, it goes away by itself. Was that babies are like little emotional sponges, right? And anything that I'm struggling with is gonna in some way have an effect on them. And I think my biggest life goal from now on is to ensure that I take care of my own shortcomings and trauma and unhealthy and unbeneficial cognitive patterns so that I allow my children to become the people that they have the potential to be without bearing mm. my trauma. Yeah, right? I love that. That that is my life goal, and if I get anywhere close to it, then I, I will consider myself blessed. Um, and anxiety just has an effect on the kids, and I'm like, I don't want that to be something that they grow up feeling anxious because you know I I didn't take the time to work through it. Oh, so yeah, thank you so much for sharing that with us. You know, you've had such an incredible life so far. And if you had to do it all over again, would you take the easy road or the road less traveled and why? Well, if you didn't tell me what was ahead and I just had the choice, I'd go back and I'd do it the exact same way. I would, I would. I mean, I, I love my life. I've had a lot of fun. <laughs> I've, you know, partied all the parties. I've drunken from the chalice of life. I've experienced a lot of wonderful things. I've grown out of my misery. Um, yeah, I think all in all, I, I'd go back and I'd do it again. I love that. Well, thank you so much for being here with us. So yeah, it was so great to catch up and to have you part of this next chapter in Wonder Women Tech's life. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a joy to speak to you as always. Like, you know, next time, hopefully in person. Thank you so much for being here, innovators. We'll see you next week when we take on the world one more time.